Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be journeying through the book of Joshua together for a while. Uh, you know, Joshua's it's a long book. It's 24 chapters. Uh, the book of Colossians was four chapters. It took us almost two years. <laughs> so we should be in this for... Uh, I can't do math. What is that, six years? Six years it should take us. Does anybody do math here? You all went to Carpi. Nobody does math. Okay. It's going to take us a long time. Uh, but as I shared with you last week, the Lord is giving us a, a year together in the Old Testament. And of course, we're reading the one-year Bible together. Is anybody stoked on that? Yes, that has been incredible. That has been so awesome. If you're not hip to that gig yet, it's not too late to start. Grab one of these flyers as you're going out the door. And uh, I wrote a little letter in there that explains what we're doing and how the Lord is leading us. And then there's a schedule to read your Bible every day. And it's been incredible for us to do that. And of course, we're in the Old Testament and the New. So for many of us, it's our first experience with the Old Testament. And then we're doing a Tuesday morning Bible study in the book of Numbers at... Um, at uh, the, uh, what's it called, that Bible study? Precept Bible study. Thank you, Norma. Thank you. The Precept Bible study, Tuesday mornings. We're going to start a class pretty soon, which is an overview of the Old Testament. We're going to be studying the book of Joshua. So a whole bunch of Old Testament. If you weren't here last week, you need to get last week's message. Ladies that were at the ladies' retreat, God bless you. You guys had an awesome time. Uh, but you've got to get last week's message because it was an introduction to the Old Testament. And if you're not really familiar with it and have some questions about it, I think it'll be helpful to you. And the books that you people ordered last week are in, uh, most of them anyway, for you this week. So you can pick those up. But here we go. Let's start reading together in Joshua chapter 1. And we're just going to read the first four verses together. It says in Joshua chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses." From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this moment in history and this season in our church. Lord, for this year, you have ordained such sweet times for us, such incredible times in your word. We're really thankful, Lord, that... You've answered a prayer and are answering a prayer that we've had so long that you would uh, just stir an incredible hunger in our hearts for your word because it's there where we find you and the truth of you and your character and your promises and your precepts and your goodness. We thank you that you're doing that in us, Lord, and we just pray now as we journey through the book of Joshua that you would instruct us incredibly as we learn about Joshua and the children of Israel taking the territory, we realize that there is a territory that you've ordained for our lives. Lord, we're, we're mindful of this coastland, a physical territory that you have ordained for us to take for your name, so to speak, a place where we are to represent you, to represent your glory, to bring the good news. Thank you for that, Lord. And there's also spiritual territory and spiritual realities that you have ordained for us, that you've already accomplished for us. And so we just ask now as we journey through this book that we uh, gather great insights as to how to take the land, so to speak, as to how to experience every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. So we're thankful for this book that you've preserved. We're thankful for this moment in history that you've ordained. Teach us together, Lord. Were your children seated at your Lord's feet, at your feet to listen to your word? Speak to us. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, a little background info on the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua was written about 1,400 years before Jesus Christ. So about 3,400 years ago, it's pretty old. It is literally ancient history. And it was written by Joshua himself with some minor additions by Eleazar the high priest and his son Phineas, uh, best that we could discern. Now, liberal scholars will disagree with those assessments. They'll disagree with a date. They'll argue for a much later date. And they'll disagree with an authentic authorship of Joshua and uh, Eliezer and his son Phineas. They'll argue for various authors and a later date, so on and so forth. Liberal scholars, liberal Christianity. But as we learned in our message last week, when it comes to the Old Testament, the liberal scholars are at odds with Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to worry too much about their opinion when it comes to the Old Testament. Amen? Are you, are you okay? Amen? Amen. Joshua, this man that we'll be learning much about in his story, was a successor to Moses. Big shoes to fill. You know, Mo's like a big deal in the Old Testament. You know what I mean? Even today, you talk about Moses, and uh, it's huge in the mind of the Jew. It's huge in the life of Israel. It's huge in the Bible. And, and Joshua was his successor. And it turns out that Joshua, because he followed Moses, is often overlooked as one of the great leaders of Israel, but he really was one of the greatest leaders in Israel in all time. And when it comes to military leadership. He could have been the greatest leader Israel has ever known. And what's interesting about Joshua and his life is that there are very few mistakes of his recorded in Scripture, and there's no great moral failure on his part. That's interesting. One of the internal evidences that we have for the Bible being written by the Holy Spirit, authored by the Holy Spirit, and not invented by men is that it reveals the faults of men and it exposes the sinfulness of man. And if man were writing a book, you know, man would not include those things about himself. That's very potently obvious in the New Testament, you know, when we see the failure of Peter, so on and so forth. In the same way in the Old Testament, you think of men like Moses. It was a failure on the part of Moses that caused him to not be able to enter the land when he struck the rock and he was supposed to just speak to the rock. You'll read that coming up pretty soon in your one-year Bible reading. David, great man that he was, had incredible moral failure. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And there's all sorts of stories in the Old Testament of men of God who started well but didn't finish well. And the Bible doesn't hide their faults and it doesn't hide uh, their failures. But when it comes to Joshua, it seems that he pretty much held the course. It seems that he pretty much was faithful to the Lord and had no major moral failures. And so there's much for us to learn from his steadfastness in the Lord. And perhaps more than any other Old Testament character, Joshua and the book of Joshua exemplifies for us how to live the victorious Christian life. It's great because that's what we want to do. We want to live in victory. Jesus is the victor who won a great victory on the cross, and we are his. And so we ought to walk in victory. And, and the book of Joshua it is a book of, of, about experiencing by faith the things that God has accomplished for his people. And so we're going to learn some very practical insights for our Christian life. And many of the challenges that Joshua and the children of Israel faced at this time are very similar in nature to the battles that we face every day as Christians against the enemy as he battles for uh, our, the attention of our hearts and minds. So much to learn from Joshua there. One of the first things that we learn about Joshua in verse 1 is that he was the servant of Moses. He was the servant of Moses. Now, Jesus Christ had a lot to say about servanthood. It's one of the primary lessons that he taught his disciples. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that on multiple occasions, he spoke to them about being servants in the kingdom of God and that true leadership was servanthood. And so within the church, within Christianity, leaders are defined as servant leaders. 
Now, you can be a servant within Christianity and not necessarily be a leader, but you cannot, by biblical definition, be a leader in Christianity and not be a servant. And Joshua, being one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history, was first a servant. And that's typical throughout the Bible. We see that with Elisha, who was a servant to Elijah before he took over that ministry. We see that throughout the Bible, that great men and women of faith were servants and had that heart. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 10, 43, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it's interesting that often in Christianity, as a pastor of a church, I see people striving for position. I see people that want to be recognized. They, they want to be looked at by people. They, they want to be appreciated. And, and what happens is the flesh begins to look for a place where they can receive recognition, a place where eyes would be upon them, a place where they could fulfill some sense of, uh, of self-importance. And that's just incorrect in the context of Christianity. Jesus said very few things about ministry, really. Here's what he said about ministry. He said, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, make yourself the servant of all. And the second thing he said was that he who is faithful with the little will be entrusted with more. And that's about all Jesus said with regards to advancing in the kingdom, so to speak, moving continually ahead in a place of servanthood and leadership is just serve people in whatever context you're in. Be faithful with the little things that God gives you to do. And when you're faithful with those, God will entrust you with more. And we see that in the life of Joshua. And what we also see in the life of Joshua is that his basic training took many years. This also was par for the course among biblical leaders, is that there was always a long period of training. We have the disciples with the Lord. We have Paul in Arabia. We have Timothy under Paul. We have all the Old Testament examples. Moses, 40 years tending the sheep, you know, before he could go back and be the leader that led Egypt out in the Exodus. We have Abraham, 25 years waiting for the promised son. Joshua's basic training was the same. It took many years. It seems that in the Bible, God is never in a hurry to give people positions of heavy responsibility. Now, the world has trained us that, that we ought to strive for position, that we've got to get ours, that we've got to move up the corporate ladder, that we need to earn some recognition and some power and some influence. Those things are contrary to the Word of God. That's why it's not easy to live biblical Christianity in the modern world because it is contrary to biblical Christianity. The world is saying, be a leader and get yours and be recognized and exert influence. And the Bible is saying, be a servant, be humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Be faithful with the little things. Don't desire great things for yourself. Just be faithful to the Lord. And that sometimes takes a while to really get that lesson. And we see that in the training of great biblical figures, and Joshua is one of them. And a few things that we learn from Joshua's background about Christian leadership are these. Number one, leaders in God's kingdom are always servants of God's people. We already spoke of that, but we can't speak about that enough because it's repeated in the Bible often. Leaders in God's kingdom are servants of God's people. Number two, it takes time to become prepared to be the faithful leader of others. And we just spoke about that. Joshua was a servant of Moses when he was a young man, it says in Numbers eleven twenty eight. We can surmise from biblical chronology that when he led Israel into the promised land, he was probably 85 years old. So there was decades of training for him, decades of work to make him the man that he needed to be to lead the nation. It's important for us to be patient before the Lord and, 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 and to be following faithfully and listening to the Lord that he could teach us all that he needs us to know. And, and then thirdly, we've got to begin to serve God now in order to be prepared for future responsibility. You know, you and I are all the same. We're procrastinators, aren't we? 
How many of you went to school for any length of time? How many of you waited to the last possible minute to start your assignments? I mean, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm doing some schooling now, and I've graduated from UCSB. I'm doing some master's work now. But when I was in UCSB, I could have a whole quarter to write a paper, and I would wait till 10.30 the night before it was due. Every single time. And I would say to myself, what am I doing? I can't believe that I do this. And I'd pull the all-nighter and drink so much coffee that I got sick and really not, you know, perform too well on the paper. And, but we're like that as people, aren't we? But we can't be that as Christians. Today is the day. Now is the time to be a servant in the kingdom of God. Because 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the grace of God in its various form. Every one of you has a gift and multiple gifts. And the way that you use your gifts are in serving one another. If you never serve other people, you'll never discover your gifts. Now, everybody wants to know their gifts. Because the Bible clearly declares that we all have them. And, and spiritual gifts are something that are intriguing to us and exciting to us. And so they should be. But you don't discover what your spiritual gifts are by taking some silly quiz, some aptitude test, by filling out some form. Not at all. The way, biblically speaking, that you discover your gifts is by serving those that God has put around you in any context that presents itself. And so you see a need in, in the corporate body or in somebody's individual life, you step out in faith and seek to meet that need, and you will then discover your gifts. Somebody needs mercy. Go and just try to love on them. You may discover that you have the gift of mercy. As someone is in financial need, you may discover that you have the gift of giving. Someone needs some help organizing a ministry within the church. You may have the gift of administration. Somebody needs to hear that they don't have to go to hell. You may be an evangelist. Someone needs some instruction in true biblical doctrine. You may have the gift of teaching. Someone just needs some practical help moving from house to house. You might have the gift of helps. And maybe there's something in the church is filthy or falling apart. You might have that gift. But you'll never know until you go. And you're never necessarily going to want to go because it's self-sacrificial. If it's not self-sacrificial, it's not ministry. Ministry on your own terms is not ministry. Ministry means service. When it says in verse 1 that Joshua was the servant of Moses, that could also be translated Joshua was the minister of Moses. Ministry means service. If it isn't self-sacrificial, if it doesn't cost you something, if you're not putting yourself out there, it's not ministry. And if it's not supernatural in its requirement, then it's definitely not God's ministry. Because the gifts are given to people to meet supernatural needs. So it's when you get in a little bit over your head that you discover the power of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Amen? But if you want to stay comfortable, you will never experience the power of God or the gifts of God or the ministry of God. You won't be a part of that. You cannot maintain your comfort zone and experience that. Sometimes, I'm not talking about, you know, you've got to go to Calcutta. I mean, I'm not, yeah, for, that was for Mother Teresa. It's for some others, praise the Lord. I'm talking about right where you are. I'm not saying you've got to give away everything that you own. I'm not saying you've got to wear sackcloth and ashes and go, woe is me. That's not the ministry. Someone with that attitude is serving self, not the ministry. Woe is me. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. I'm talking about where you are, who you are, and who you know, serving the people around you. God has given you a specific sphere of influence. You're right where God wants you to be. All you need to do is get a little bit out of your comfort zone, get a little into the needs of others, and you will discover the power of God, the gifts of the Spirit, and the joy of serving Jesus. Amen? So Joshua discovered those things as he was serving Moses through the wilderness experience and, and throughout the Exodus. And it's an incredible story that you guys will be reading as we go through the Bible together in a year. Another interesting that we, thing that we see about Joshua is that he is a type or a picture or a foreshadow of Jesus. 
Remember we spoke about last week that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus? It speaks about him explicitly, and it also speaks about him in pictures. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the things that happened in the Old Testament happened for our instruction. In the original language, they are types for you and I. It's not that they're allegories. There's not. The Bible does employ allegory at time, but the Bible is not an allegory. The Bible is a book of historical events pertaining to God's working among his people. And these historical events have parallels in the life of the Christian. They paint for us a very vivid picture of who Christ is and how we serve him and walk with him and live this Christian life. And so in Old Testament typology, we see that Joshua is a type or a picture or a foreshadow of Jesus. Their names are very similar. They're variations on the same root in Hebrew. Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua. Jesus is Greek for Hebrew Yeshua. They're separated by just one character in the Hebrew. So Joshua, Yehoshua, and Jesus Yeshua. Their names are very close when you write them out in Hebrew. They mean the same thing. The Lord is salvation. So even in the name of Joshua, we see a prophecy, so to speak, a promise of the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord is salvation, and Jesus is our salvation. Amen? Now, juxtaposed to that is Mo, Moses. Moses is a picture of the law. Moses is the one who received the law from God on Mount Sinai. And Moses comes, becomes for us in Old Testament typology a picture of the law. In no way is that more potently pictured in this fact. That Moses didn't get to enter into the promised land. We'll talk about that in a little bit and you'll read that pretty soon. Uh, in the one-year Bible. He didn't get to enter in, but Joshua led the people in. And what that speaks for us in typology is this. We cannot enter into the promises of God or the Christian life through the law, but rather it is through the Lord and his salvation. Moses did not enter in. Joshua, the Lord is salvation, led them into the promised land. We see a parallel in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, Moses is a, is a typology, a picture of the law. He was a literal, actual person. There were historical events, but it paints for us a picture of the law. Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law. Amen. We are no longer under the law. We are now in the covenant of grace. And so it says in Galatians 3.20, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. To be justified means to be declared innocent and righteous. It doesn't happen by obeying the law. It happens by the work of the Lord and the grace that is extended to us. So we have that typology in Moses and Joshua. And so as Joshua then brings the children into the promised land, the land of promise, into the blessings of God, what we have unfold before us is primarily a book of war. Primarily a book of war. The purpose of the book is described in the Bible Knowledge Commentary is this. The purpose of the book of Joshua is to give an official account of the historical fulfillment of the Lord's promise to the patriarchs to give Israel the land of Canaan. Okay? So the book is primarily an official account of the historical fulfillment of the Lord's promise. You guys have been reading about the Lord's promise in the book of Genesis as you've been journeying through the Bible with us in the one-year Bible reading. Turn to Genesis 12 right now. As we review some of that. Genesis 12. We're going to look at God's promise to give the land of Canaan to Israel. Again, Joshua is a historical account of the experience of that promise being fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 12, we have something called the Abrahamic Covenant. We've spoken of it in previous teachings. We won't belabor the point right now. 
but we're just going to contrast on one aspect of the covenant right now, which is the land. We're going to see how it is repeatedly promised to Israel. We'll start with uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. It says, And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here we see the first promise of the land of Canaan being given to Abraham and his descendants. Turn now to chapter 13 and look at verses 15 and 17. 15 through 17. Well, let's start in verse 14. Here we see the promise repeated. Genesis 13, 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, that your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about in the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Promises of God to a man named Abraham. Let's see it further in chapter 15 now. Verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadamite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So here we see that God made a covenant concerning the land. Now our God is a covenant-keeping God, amen? He made a promise that could not be broken. Now look in chapter 17, verse 18. You guys have just read all this stuff in the last couple weeks. Isn't that cool? You know this. Chapter 17, starting in verse, uh, what did I say? Let's read 8, verse 8. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Okay, the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel and some broader territory. We'll speak about that later. He said he would give it to them as an everlasting possession. Now, you know the story. While Abraham was waiting for Isaac to be born, the promised son, the promised descendant, he got a little antsy. He took the situation into his own hands, and he birthed Ishmael, the proverbial work of the flesh, the thing you never want to do. And Abraham says to the Lord now in verse 18, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. In other words, God, I know I took the situation into my own hands. I know that instead of trusting you to birth a promised son through Sarah for me, I had a relationship with her maidservant, Hagar. We had this son, Ishmael. Lord, can you just kind of work with Ishmael for me? Can that be okay? Listen, <laughs> God doesn't work our way. We got to work God's way. Amen. Abraham took a shortcut. He made a mistake. And he's saying, God, can you just kind of work with me on this here? And God says in verse 19, but God said no. God says that sometimes. God said no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him. For an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So we see that the promise of the land of Canaan, Israel, was given to Abraham and then passed to his son Isaac. It was not passed to his son Ishmael. It's not that God had anything against Ishmael. It's just that he had a plan for and a promise for Isaac. God was very merciful about Ishmael. He said, listen, I, I can't alter my promise because you made a mistake, Abraham. Give me a break. I'm going to give the land to Isaac and his descendants. But I'll go ahead and make Ishmael a great nation and the father of nations. And Ishmael is the ancestor of the Arab people. God bless him because God did bless him. 
In fact, if we survey the biblical land of the Middle East, God gave them all the land that was rich in oil and natural resources. And we have many Arab brothers around the world who have recognized that truth from the Bible and who have recognized the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the land of Israel was not given to them. There's no way biblically that you could ever make that case. God said, no, I'm giving it to Isaac. I don't hate Ishmael. I'm going to bless the socks off Ishmael. In fact, we see that the Arab lands are over 99% of the land in the Middle East. Israel makes up less than 1% of the land. It's just a little bit of land where God said, I'm going to give it to a certain people group so that I can demonstrate my faithfulness to a people against all odds and that I might have a delivery vehicle through which I could present the Messiah to the world. Amen? We see the promise again now in chapter 26. Go to Genesis 26. Verses 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land besides a previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all the lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of the coming of the Messiah. Verse 5, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Okay, there's many more places we could read about the promise and the covenant of the land. But what is perhaps the most potent point that you realized about that covenant and that promise through reading those passages? What is the most potent point? Huh? Didn't it just say over and over, forever? I will give it to you as an everlasting promise. I, as an everlasting inheritance, I will give it to you forever. God says over and over and over and over in the Bible that he would give the land of Israel to Israel forever. Forever. When God says forever, he means forever. Now, historically speaking, there were times when Israel was displaced from the land. In 722, because of their disobedience, the Assyrians came and conquered them, and they were displaced from the land, and then God restored them. In about 586 B.C., again, because of their obstinance and disobedience, God judged them through the Babylonians. They were deported and removed from the land, and God restored them. In A.D. 70, once again, because of their obstinance and disobedience, as Jesus prophesied from the Mount of Olives, they were removed from the land, and what we are seeing at this moment in history is God restoring them to the land once again, and something that has never happened in the history of the world is that a nation that ceased to be a nation for 2,000 years became a nation again in a day at midnight, May 14th, 1948. That is a modern-day example of the God of the Bible being faithful to promises he made thousands of years ago. It's not just history, it's prophecy, it's happening right now. God is absolutely faithful, and we are witnessing Israel being regathered to the land at this moment, and according to the prophecies of the Bible in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, excuse me, in uh, Zechariah 12, 1 through 3, and other places, they are being challenged for the possession of the land, and the whole world is turning against them. It has all been prophesied. And so we are at a juncture in the book of Joshua where history intersects with prophecy. Had we been studying the book of uh, Joshua 60 years ago, we would not have had such incredible insight of the promises being restored to the land once again. We are a blessed generation to see God moving in Israel at this moment in history. I want you, if you're not familiar with this topic, with this subject, with these ideas, to go to our website 
And at our website, you could search the message database, search for Israel, messages that we've taught on Israel. And there you'll find a couple dozen of them and about Israel being restored to the land and how that is prophetically and biblically undeniable. I want you to notice that in chapter 26, verse 5, God said that it was a done deal. Now, from that point on, when God first made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, until Joshua actually led the people into the land was a time span of 500 years. It's hard for us to lay hold of that. Because you know what I mean? We've only been a nation ourselves for a couple hundred years. But we're talking about a promise that was made and then 500 years later, God made good on it. Now, a lot transpired, obviously, in those 500 years. So right now, I'm going to give you a very brief historical sketch of what took place during that time. Firstly, we saw the promise of the land to Abraham. And then that promise was passed to Isaac, not Ishmael. And then that promise was uh, passed to Jacob, not Esau. So Jacob being Isaac's son, and so to his descendants. Jacob had his name changed to Israel by God. He had 12 sons who became the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. His favorite son, according to Genesis 37.3, was Joseph. Incredible story in the Bible to read the story of Joseph. Joseph, because of the jealousy of his brothers, was sold into slavery to the Midianites, and he ended up in Egypt in Potiphar's house. There he was framed for something that he didn't do, and he ended up in prison. There he had an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream by the Spirit of God, and he did so, and Pharaoh was so impressed that Pharaoh made him second in command over Egypt. Joseph was very effective in the leadership of Egypt because the hand of God was upon him. And so Egypt prospered under his leadership. And Joseph's brothers, who had once sold him into slavery and fiend that he was dead before his dad, came to Egypt. Joseph embraced them. And now the 12 tribes of Israel begin to flourish in Egypt. And they're there in Egypt for some time until we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, that there arose a new Pharaoh who didn't know or care who Joseph and the Israelites were. And so he began then to enslave the nation of Israel in Egypt, and Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And that had been prophesied in Genesis 15, 13 to Abraham that that would happen. Well, after 400 years, God heard the cry of his people Israel, and so God raised up a deliverer for Israel, and that is the man Moses, and we read about that story of Moses being called in Exodus chapter 3. So Moses leads the people of Israel. This is a very abbreviated sketch of biblical history. Moses leads the people of Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt, round about the year 1446 B.C., and he leads them to the promised land. That's where we have all those incredible stories about the parting of the Red Sea and the manna and so on and so forth. Moses brings them from Egypt to the promised land in an event called the Exodus. When they get to the promised land at a place called Kadesh Barnea, which we don't know exactly where it is now. It's located somewhere uh, on, on the southeast side of the Dead Sea. When they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea that was an oasis, it was there that they were supposed to go into the land. After coming out of Egypt, after God being faithful with their time in the wilderness, but listen, after all of that, even though God had promised some almost 500 years earlier that he would bring them into the land, they refused to enter in for two reasons. They had fear in their hearts and they had a lack of faith. God had accomplished amazing things. I mean, can you imagine being part of that generation and seeing the plagues happening in Egypt and God's protection upon the Jews, but those plagues, plagues coming upon Pharaoh and his people? Can you imagine leaving there after 400 years, twice as long as we've been a nation? That's all you and your people have ever known. And now God raises up this man and you're delivered, but then you get to the Red Sea and you have got this sea before you and Pharaoh had changed his mind and he's coming after them. They've got the sea before them and all the chariots of Pharaoh behind them. And God parts the Red Sea. I mean, they saw this with their own eyes. 
They experienced the manna. They experienced the cloud by day that would lead them through the wilderness and the pillar of fire by night. They saw the power of God made manifest. But just like you and I, it didn't matter how much they had seen. They finally got to the place and what they saw now overwhelmed what they had seen previously. That's where we pick up the story Them then, is them about to enter into the land and what transpires. So turn to Numbers 13 now. Numbers 13. We really got to move quickly, guys, or this teaching will be an hour and a half. So go quickly to Numbers 13. Numbers 13 and 14, we have this event at Kadesh Barnea referred to in Psalm 95, referred to in the book of Hebrews and other places. Israel has finally arrived at the promised land, and Moses sends out 12 spies to spy out the land. You've heard that phraseology, to spy out the land. We read about that in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So there were 12 spies, and, and the man uh, whose book we're reading, Joshua, happened to be one of those spies. Verse 17 when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? Just the Lord wanted them to know what they were up against. The Lord was being very forthright with them, but he said, I have given you this land. Go check it out. Now, when the spies came back, they all agreed that it was a good land. They all agreed that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord had promised. Verse 23, when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where uh, that guy and that guy and that guy, the descendants of Anak were. Oh, that's verse 22, forgive me. Verse 23, thank you. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel had cut down from there. Verse 25, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is a fruit. I mean, this was an extraordinary land at this time. Uh, the, 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 the grapes that they cut down, they had to put them on a pole and carry them between men. I mean, this was a giant, huge cluster of grapes. The fruit was unbelievable. It just so happened that they arrived at Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea at the time of harvest of the grapes. That, that was God's providence. And they go in, and it's just incredible fruit. And they bring it out, and they're like, hey, wow, it's everything that God said. I mean, look at this grape. Like, you know, grape is huge. But the spies, though they had seen how wonderful it was, they disagreed upon what they ought to do. Verse 28. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Uh, Amalekite is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. So... The spies say, gosh, there's a lot of big, scary people there, and they're all over the place. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted all the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it, right? I mean, God gave us the land, and there's some challenges. But guys, let's go for it. God is faithful. God gave us the land. We're going to conquer. We're going to overcome. Let's go for it, Caleb says. But the men who had gone up with him said, 
We're not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. Verse 32, So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they have spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, part of the Nephilim, and we became like little tiny grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So 10 of the spies are saying, it's too much. We can't do it. There's big, scary people there. And we're like little grasshoppers. And it seems like too much. And we're overwhelmed by the very thought of it. Yes, there's good things. And yes, God promised it. And I know we've seen the parting of the Red Sea. And yes, he led us through the wilderness. And yes, he's been totally faithful, even though we've been absolute jerks. And he's brought us to this point And he delivered us from Egypt. But gosh, it sure, sure seems tough. Caleb and Joshua said, come on, guys. God said it. Let's do it. Let's walk in victory. Let's take the land. And the people of Israel, hearing the two divided reports, the ten who said we can't do it, the two who said we can, made the common mistake of thinking the majority must be right. And so they rebelled against the authority and the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and the two were almost killed before God intervened. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and all the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Remember, this is a man that led them out of captivity. Now they're complaining against him. And the whole congregation said to them, Oh, I wish that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is, a God, is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. This is ridiculous. This is utter insanity the Lord had delivered them from slavery and now because there's some battle involved now because there's some faith required now because they're going to need to persevere and press in and be strong in the strength of the Lord they say oh it'd be better if we just died in Egypt or in the wilderness let's go back to Egypt wait a minute guys in Egypt, you were enslaved. Your backs were broken open with the whips of Egyptians and your children were murdered. What are you talking about? This is utter insanity. And yet Christians do it every single day. Every single day. There are men and women who have been born again by the Spirit of God, saved by the blood of the Lamb delivered from slavery and death and oppression by the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and then when some tribulation comes along, when some challenges come along, and Jesus didn't pull any punches, he said, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But when some trouble comes along, and it's going to require some perseverance and some faith and some character... Oh, it was better in the old life. The Christian life is too hard. I prefer being in slavery. They may not verbalize it, but they appoint for themselves leaders after their own accord, and they head back to Egypt. And they enslave themselves once again to Satan and sin and the world when they have been set free by Jesus Christ. And it is ridiculous. It is insanity. We read about Israel and we say, what was wrong with them? And yet as Christians, we have to waver between two opinions. If God is God, serve Him. And yet we waver and we vacillate. And we hymn and we haw. And we flirt with the world. And we log on to Egypt and we look and we search and we go after. All the while we have been set free and we are on the edge of the promises and the blessings of God. If we will just walk in them and lay hold of them by faith, God has already accomplished it. Verse 5. 
Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation and the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of that guy, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. That's what Jews did when they were in absolute, utter disgust and despair and horror. They tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Wow. Joshua and Caleb gave an awesome little exhortation here. Verse 10. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of, the, of meeting to the sons of Israel. So they were going to kill Joshua and Caleb and Aaron and Moses, but the Lord intervened and appeared at that stage. And this was for Israel since their exodus, their 10th act of rebellion to the Lord. The Lord is long-suffering. The Lord is patient. The Lord is merciful. But this act here, Kadesh Barnea, in Numbers 13 and 14, is their 10th act of rebellion. And so what the Lord does at this point is proclaim judgment against the Exodus generation, the generation that came out of Egypt. God is now going to judge them for their lack of faith, for their disobedience, for their refusal to lay hold of what God had for them. And so what he says, and you read it later on in the rest of the chapter, is he says, you guys will not enter into the land then. I'm bringing judgment upon you. I was willing to bring you into all these blessings. I was willing to give you all these things. I would have given you all this territory. But they rebelled against the Lord and his servants with their lack of faith. And so God judges them and says that they would not go in. That the only ones that would enter in were Joshua and Caleb and the people present who were under 20 years of age. The rest would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. And then the younger generation, who was 20 years and older at that time of age, would go in under the leadership of Joshua and Kaler. Uh, Joshua and Kaler. <laughs> Josh Kaler is the name of one of our pastors on staff. That was funny. That was hilarious. They would go in under Joshua and Caleb. But the ones who refused to believe the good report would lose the promise. They would lose the blessings. Listen to me, people. God said, even in the days of Noah, my spirit will not strive with man forever. It's taught in Romans chapter 1 that there is a time where God will remove his convicting influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, God will just turn people over to their sin and the consequences thereof. There seems to be a time where we make an irrevocable decision that brings consequences into our life. Now, they didn't lose their eternal salvation. In fact, they repented later on in the chapter, and God forgave them. Verse 20, chapter 14, verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Moses prayed for them. The people repented. God forgave them. But please listen to me, Christians. God was not going to remove the judgment of the consequences that they would experience. He forgave them. Nobody was losing their salvation here, so to speak. But their decision was irrevocable in the consequences that it brought into their life. They repented and God forgave, but there would be consequences. They would never see the land. They would miss out on the incredible blessings that God had for them. That 500 years ago, he told to their father Abraham, they would just miss it now. It also meant, and this scares me, it also meant that their children would experience the consequences of their sin. Not the guilt of their sin. The book of Ezekiel speaks about that. Children don't inherit their parents' guilt, but they can inherit consequences of their parents' sin. This younger generation, the children under the age of 20, they too would have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't sin. 
the adult sin. The consequences affected the next generation. These things terrify me. That number one, we can through our disobedience just miss out on so much of what God has for you and I. God is willing to bless us more than we're willing to receive it, I think. More than we can even fathom to believe, the Bible says. God wants to give us good and perfect gifts. He has incredible things laid out for us. But if we continue in disobedience and in disbelief, we will miss out on those things. Our position before the Lord doesn't change. We're still saved. We've been born again. Our position, salvifically speaking, with regards to salvation, hasn't changed. But we miss out on the blessings. We miss out on the promises. We miss out on so much of what God has for us. And, and then the people around us suffer because of it. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. We wish sin happened in a vacuum. I wish I could sin to my heart's delight and it didn't affect anybody. It's not the way life works. We're going we're gonna to learn that later on in the weeks to come in the book of Joshua. But the next generation suffered because of what the previous generation did. Listen to me, there's many generations in this room. Well, a couple at least. Should the Lord tarry, what is the spiritual legacy and heritage that we will leave on this coastline? Because we think that we sin behind closed doors and nobody knows and nobody is affected. But the Bible teaches that our children are affected. The Bible teaches that the next generation suffers because of the sin of the fathers and the mothers. People, please. The Lord has so many good things for you and I. For us as a church, as a people, as a generation. We ought not to miss them because of our flirtations with sinfulness. And what we learn through this experience at Kadesh Barnea is that we have got to obey God no matter what the circumstances. And we've got to trust the Lord even when it's hard. And, and that's what trust is. You know, if you trust somebody, you extend that trust when you have a hard time believing something or when you're unsure or when things are scary and, and then you still say, okay, I'm with you. That's trust. You see that in a marriage relationship. You, you see that for children. You see that in all sorts of relationships. And that ought to be in our relationship with God. When things get hairy, when things get scary, that is where the rubber meets the road. That is where our faith is discovered or denied. Is when the circumstances seem overwhelming. And yes, the circumstances were gnarly for them. There were indeed giants in the land. And there were fortified cities. And there were lots of inhabitants who had been there for a long time. But God said, I will give you the land. And they should have taken him at his word and let his love cast out fear and went ahead and just marched across the Jordan at that time and entered in. They would have saved themselves so much grief. They would have experienced so much more. The whole flow of history would have been different. Now the land that they were going into, then called the land of Canaan, is a picture or a foreshadow or a type of the Christian life. It, it, it's not a picture of heaven, as is sometimes uh, described in some old hymns, that when we get to Canaan, it, it's not a picture of heaven, because listen, there's not going to be trouble in heaven, amen? There's not going to be giants in the land. It's a picture of the Christian life, them going in and possessing the land and settling the land. It, it was a real land. It's literal, historical events, but it paints for us a picture of our life with Jesus as the Old Testament does. Now, in this life, there, we're going to encounter some giants. If we seek to follow the Lord, we will encounter opposition. Paul said to Timothy, indeed, all those who desire to live godly will experience persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. We live in a fallen antichrist world. It's not puppy dogs and butterflies. There's going to be some problems. There's going to be giants in the land. But if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. The victory is already won through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
All we need to do is lay hold of it by faith. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Which spiritual blessings? Read your Bible. They're in there, all of them. He's blessed us with every single spiritual blessing. He's already done it. Notice the past tense in that verse. Who has blessed us? It's already been accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Positionally, it's done. Practically, the job of every Christian is to walk in the work of Jesus Christ through the cross. Positionally, it is finished. Practically, it is a process. And the goal of every Christian is to walk by faith in that process, trusting in the Lord and living an abundant life. Just as God said to Joshua in our text, Joshua 1 verse 3, every place on which the sole of your foot stands, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. All they had to do was walk through the whole land and see the victory of the Lord. Yes, there were battles. Yes, they'd have to pull out the sword. Yes, they would encounter some giants and some trials. But he said, everywhere that your foot treads, I have given it to you. God had already done it. All they had to do was claim it. All they had to do was walk in it. All they had to do was appropriate it to their lives. That's all they had to do. God had already done it. They just had to walk in it by faith. The tragedy is that they missed out on so much of what God had for them. It says in Joshua 1.4, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, even as far as the great sea, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. Please look at this map. You see the red outline? You see the red outline? That red outline is all the territory that God had promised them. It, it encompasses uh, much of modern Egypt. It, it, it encompasses much of modern Iraq. It encompasses all of Jordan. It encompasses Syria and Lebanon and some of Saudi Arabia. That giant red outline is all the promised land. What they ever actually took or possessed is that tiny portion on the left in the blue outline. God said, all of that is yours. I have ordained all of that for you. I've already given it to you. All you need to do is walk in it and take it. And they only ever realized a small percentage of the promise of God. And I find so it is in the Christian life today. God has so much for us. More than we could fathom. But we sell ourselves short when we don't press into the Lord, when we don't pursue hard after the Lord, when we compromise, when we continue in our sin instead of repenting, we don't lose our salvation, but we lose our blessings, at least so many of them. I, I shudder to think what my own life would look like if we were able to map it like we are, the promises made to Israel. Britt, here's all that I have for you. And, and then this tiny portion that I've realized. I, I, that, would, that would shatter us if the Lord showed us that. But it was true in the life of Israel, and too often it's true for us. And what we're going to learn in the book of Joshua is how to walk in victory. There's going to be war, there's going to be trials, there's going to be some defeats, but there is going to be victory, and they are going to experience the power of, the presence and the promises of God and we have the same God they had and he has for us today his power his presence so let's lay hold of it amen Lord thank you for your word Lord we are so excited about the training that's coming into our lives through the book of Joshua that, Lord, you're going to train us for righteousness. Yes, you're going to reprove and correct us, but you're going to teach us and train us for righteousness. And, Lord, we want to agree together in faith today and say, yes, we believe your word, that you're able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we've ever thought to ask you, and that your thoughts toward us are good and that they outnumber the sand on the seashore, and that we wouldn't even believe if you revealed the goodness that you have for us. Your word says that. 
And you know, often we're overwhelmed by circumstances and we feel like grasshoppers in a land of giants. Oh, Jesus, we just ask that you would enter fresh into our world today. Jesus, that you would so be enthroned upon our lives that no giant would loom large whatsoever. You would so be exalted in our midst as the valiant king, as a mighty warrior, that we would follow after you. You would lead us into victory. We would take the territory of our lives and our families and our children and our community for you. You've got so much more, Lord, and we want it. Lord, we say together as individuals and as a church, we want everything you have for us, nothing less and nothing more. We want everything that you have for us, Lord, nothing less and nothing more. And so God of the universe, come by your Holy Spirit and examine our hearts. See if there be any wayward thing in us and deal with it. Lord, where we are weak, would you be showing yourself strong? Where we are overwhelmed, would you allow us to mount up as with wings of eagles and to gain new strength? Where there's fear, would your love come and cast out fear? Where we are downcast, would you come and be the lifter of our head? Thank you that we are yours and that you are faithful and that you have won the victory. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in it this year. This is a year of our Lord. And we are yours. Come, Holy Spirit, and move. Come move in our midst now and do a deep work here.